The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, get ready, Dr. Philomena Trindade. Functional medicine genius and friend of the show. I mean, you should get ready, not not her. She's, right, she's, she's always ready. She's born ready. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So sore. Yeah? My core. My core is sore. Like emotionally? <laughs> My muscles. Oh, sorry. Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you? Sore. You said that. Yes. You mentioned that. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of planking. What are things a pirate says? <laughs> well, I'm doing well also. Uh, thanks for asking. Aww. And this is the podcast called The Lab Report, brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and Dr. Philomena Trindade. That's right. And if you're excited about this show, you should join us on iTunes and Spotify. Maybe hit the subscribe button, rate, review, leave us some stars, some feedback. <laughs> And if you have more feedback, like, why is that dinging noise happening? <laughs> you can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net, and that is where we will peruse it. I'm psyched about today's show. Man, it is always Philomena. a great day when you have Philomena Trindade, who is just a functional medicine, integrative medicine, metabolic medicine superstar. Mm-hmm. And we could really talk to her just about anything. And we sort of do. We call her intermittently and just pick her brain. She's taught us so much since we started here in functional medicine. So she's a friend and a mentor. And we're so excited to have her back on the show. As you remember, Michael, Mm. we had her on maybe a year ago. Do I remember? I never forget an encounter with Philomena. Ever. Ever. Uh, Yeah, she talked about things like diabetes, Mm -hmm. ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting, um, because she's somewhat of the expert on those fields. That's so, right. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many other, th- I've got a list of, of questions here. I hope she took the day off because. <laughs> Let's I, get her. <laughs> She'll answer them all. Yeah, and she's way over in the Azores, mm-hmm. which I remember the first time we did a webinar together, the first time I did a webinar here was with her and somebody was Aww. like, she's in the Azores. And I was like, where is that? <laughs> What's the Azores? Yeah, I just imagined right. that she was like in the <laughs> middle of a jungle with like a solar no. panel hooked no. up to a laptop. No, but to be Some clear, big satellite dish. I only know it because of Philomena. Yeah, me too. And I'm, I'm so thankful to know about it because I, I think I'm going to take a vacation there one day here. Oh, it, good. It's an archipelago, right? Yeah, it's an archipelago of volcanic islands in the North Atlantic. What is an archipelago? Mm. Let's Google it. Now, that is a lot of letters. Archipelago. Yeah. Volcanic, huh? When is peak volcano season? Maybe I should reconsider when I go there. Got it. Oh, great. It's a group of islands. Hmm. All right. Let's, uh, let's call the Azores. So, Patty. What? 
Do you know who we have? Oh, who we I'm have so back, excited. Our best friend. Dr. Philomena Trindade. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Trindade. Dr. Philomena Trindade is a teacher, author, and internationally sought-after lecturer in functional medicine. She is faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and in the fellowship program in metabolic medicine at Metabolic Medical Institute, MMI. After obtaining a BA degree in biology, she went on to obtain a master's degree in public health before starting medical school. She graduated first of her class in family practice from the University of California Davis School of Medicine and completed residency in family practice at the UC San Francisco Santa Rosa program. Dr. Trindade has been in clinical practice for over 25 years. She's been published in several journals, magazines, and textbooks. Her, home, her current practice, Sadade Wellness, offers mentorships to other practitioners as well as health retreats in the Azores, her homeland. And with that, Yay. thank you so much for being Hi, here. Hi, Philomena. It's, hi there. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's so good to be with you guys and with your energy. Yay. Well, as Michael said, welcome back, actually. So you might remember that in your first interview with us last year, we dove into the topics of diabetes and ketogenic diets. But I think the biggest question is, how has your life changed since becoming a huge star from appearing on the Lab Report podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been great. Thank you so oh, much whirlwind. for the exposure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, I you know, it's um it's not changed that much. Um of course the traveling has been, you know, completely different yeah. right? because of COVID. You know, right. I've made a few trips here and there, but nothing like before. Yeah. Uh but it um also I feel has allowed me time to do those things that you know you always put at the bottom of your list but are actually pretty important but you just never quite get to them Absolutely. so it's been really good yeah. and it's also been a lot of um a lot of time to uh, read more to try and catch up which is you know absolutely impossible That's to right. catch up. you just have to live with that yep yeah. um and also you know our world is changing so it is sad time but at the same time it's also this time of of change and opportunity in a way. And I always like looking on the bright side. It's yeah. a good reframe. It is a good reframe. Yeah. And it's it's sort of that opportunity to take a little bit of a breath and uh, just kind of yeah. recapture where you're at. So mm -hmm. I agree with that. You know, in this time of the COVID pandemic, everyone's hyper-focused on optimizing health. So where do you start with patients when this topic comes up? Do you start with the gut or the HPA axis, nutrition? Like, what's your go-to there? You kind of do a little bit of everything, um, but you always look for what is that person's sort of Achilles heel? You know, what is their weakest link? Mm -hmm. You know, I've had quite a few patients with COVID now and some that were almost completely asymptomatic to so some that were really sick and were hospitalized and some even in the ICU. I haven't had any uh, personal deaths, in other words, from my patients, but mm -hmm. I've seen it run the whole gamut. And really what I've noticed the differences, and it makes total sense, is sort of how robust is their gut? Is their immune system, right? Is their whole you know, status, are they deficient? Mm -hmm. And even those patients that may have some chronic diseases, whether it's um, diabetes or it's hypertension or cardiovascular disease or depression for that matter, mm -hmm. I think it's also about finding what is their weakest link or what are their deficiencies and work on that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. everyone's hpa axis is being affected in right. this day in this day and age but a lot of that has to do with what's their gut right, right. and also what is their 
um, an antioxidant as well as their vitamin and their mineral status. So it's important that we try and assess it and personalize our approach to each. Granted, there's some general things that we're going to do for COVID in general, but I think it's also really important to personalize it to each patient. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we often talk about how important adequate nutrition is. What do you think is specifically relevant around nutrition as it relates to COVID? And I've watched a lot of your videos on your website around COVID of you and your garden, (laughs) which are great videos. So where do you start with nutrition as it relates to COVID? I have sort of my basic things, uh, which is 10 to 12 servings of vegetables and fruit. I'm sure you guys yep. have heard me talk about that. Yep. We've and seen you eat them. Just <laughs> <laughs> on more than one occasion. That's right. So. That's right. <laughs> I know you can't. I know that you were in complete disbelief as to how much vegetables I can put away. We watched it. We watched it. <laughs> so my 10 to 12 servings, uh, you know, mostly two of fruit and the low glycemic load fruits, um, if insulin resistance is an issue. And then the 35 grams of soluble fiber, which is not included in those 10 to 12s, mm. but those would be your nuts and seeds, things like chia seeds and flax seeds and coconut flour, and my all-time favorite, chestnuts, mm. um, and making sure that everyone's getting enough soluble fiber because it is the soluble fiber that is going to increase their robustness. It's going to feed your microbiome, right? You've got microbiota. Right. So that's really important. And then also looking at, so to me, that's the foundation. We can add on to that, but you need that foundation. You need all those leafy green vegetables to then supplement maybe your, you know, your B vitamins, your methylfolate and your methyl or hydroxyl B12, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I want to really also look at what is going on in terms of minerals. We know zinc is particularly important, you know, for, for COVID mm-hmm. and vitamin D. And we've sort of increased our levels of what is considered optimal mm-hmm. given you know covid mm-hmm. as well as also looking at what else can we add to the mix that we know is really important my big focus has been on maintaining someone's glutathione levels high you know we have studies on using glutathione even oral glutathione at higher doses you know to sort of nip covid in the butt so to speak mm-hmm. and it's published so i try to do everything possible to increase their antioxidant status but especially glutathione and then things like quercetin which are also really important and i i feel like that's uh, almost impossible to get enough from the diet mm-hmm. those that's pretty much been my focus yeah right and from the glutathione standpoint do you focus mostly on n-acetylcysteine or are you doing more liposomal glutathione just or out of curiosity precursors or yeah. vitamins and minerals i, I do it all yeah. i do it all okay. so i get people to eat as to, as much as they can and just foods that are high in glutathione Right. Asparagus is extremely high in glutathione. Um, so is avocado, kiwi fruit, for example. And then I do I give the precursors. Unless I know someone's genomics, I'm going to do it all. Yeah. And I also give liposomal glutathione, as you mentioned. And for the precursors, of course, you're going to do alpha lipoic acid, N-acetylcysteine, you know, and the uh, you know your selenium as well as glutamine because you know, the structure of glutathione, as well as, of course, giving the glutathione. I think it's really important. And in some patients, it's how do you give it? Sometimes liposomal oral is enough. Other times you need to do it inhaled and even IV. Mm. Yeah. And on that front, um, you know, you kind of have your foundation, but how do you evaluate some of the additional things that people might need? Like, how do you evaluate their nutritional status and what they might need? So, uh, okay, I'm sure you've t- heard me talk about this before. I do as much as I can with physical exam, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. especially looking at the oral mucosa, the, the nails, their hair, you know, their overall sort of status. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also do nutritional status on pretty much every patient 
that uh, comes to my door, even those that have followed me from my nonprofit days that can't afford it because thanks to Genova's program, you know, your indigent program, I've been able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I always followed up with a nutrition evaluation and I use a NutriVal. Mm-hmm. Yay. And even in the time of the pandemic, we have that non-invasive option, the metabolomics. Do, have you found yourself using that? Yes, although I tend to do more of I'll do a whole genomic profile. Sometimes I'll add it on. But in many cases, most of my patients will have had one done before or I may want to know it all. So I may do just a whole genomic profile. Right, right. Cool. Good. You know, sometimes it seems like our patients, I mean, especially with the standard American diet, that they need just a lot of nutritional support. And when you have a patient like this, where do you normally start? You kind of mentioned your foundations, but do you focus on like key nutrients or do you just kind of throw, you know, all the appropriate supplements at them that they might need? Kitchen sink. (laughs) Well, yeah, the kitchen sink, everything in the kitchen sink. I think in the beginning I did more of that. And then, you know, I realized that there is pill fatigue. Right. And um, then I said, well, I need to really work on the HPA axis because I'm good at that and I can understand that. And stress, you know, really sort of is the evil of all evils. Mm -hmm. Um, And although that's important, I think it's really particularly important to focus on it for each patient. Because what I find is that no matter how many supplements I'm throwing at someone, if I can't get to the root cause and fix that, I'm always sort of going to be like a cat chasing its tail. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I can figure out what the root cause is, and in many cases, it's not just poor ingestion although or not ingesting the right foods, but it's also their ability to process it, right, to digest mm-hmm. and assimilate and, uh, and absorb, right? right. So I, I think that is key. And in particularly in today's society where, you know, we're so stressed and we're eating the horrible American diet, mm-hmm. I think it, it's really important to really look at how is someone digesting? Because I find almost hardly any patient that doesn't have some problem with digestion and assimilation. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's they're low on HCL or they don't have enough pancreatic enzymes or the herbiliary tree isn't working properly. I think it's really important to start with that and then work up. It's not that I'm not going to supplement, but I'm also going to look to try and figure out why has this happened? You know, mm-hmm. why are they so deficient? Mm-hmm. Aside from, you know, the fact that we have food that is pretty devoid of nutrition and the patients are eating a lot of processed foods. You know, taking all that into consideration, there's also a lot of problems with digestion and assimilation. Yeah. Right. And a lot of education on that piece, too, to teach people how to Absolutely. eat what they're eating. Yeah. yeah. So, or even just that, you know, the purple pill <laughs> yeah, right. does have a lot of secondary effects. You know, people just still right. think, oh, so... You think my osteoporosis was from being on a proton pump inhibitor mm-hmm. for 12 years? Right. Yep. Ah. Yep. And mm-hmm. yep. And so with that, when we speak about nutrition, we know that you're our go-to expert around diabetes. And yeah. we've, we've watched you experiment with things like ketosis and fasting and other metabolic strategies. So we're just going to throw a couple little nutrition questions at you as it relates to diabetes, if that's okay. Yeah? Sure. Uh, yeah, first one is, so where are we at with carbs? Do we pretty much hate them right now? Are they, are they awful? Or should we avoid them entirely? The where are we at with carbs? Well, I think you also have to look at the type of carbs, right? So right. complex carbohydrates versus simple carbohydrates. And yes, we want to avoid carbs, but we also want to look at the quality. You know, where are they coming from and how active is someone, mm-hmm. right? And uh you have to take all that into account and you have to really personalize it for each patient. Mm. So yes, we want to go low on carbs, but we have to go 
we have to delve a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and personalized. Right. Yeah. Right. And speaking of that, we've had an episode or two here talking about continuous glucose monitoring mm-hmm. and to see which carbs work best for your specific blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Do you use CGM or, or do you not? And do you instead have other just simple rules that you follow? No, I use it. I wish that it was covered by more insurances, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's amazing because, you know, I've been preaching to the choir about this, right? Yep. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I learned very early on in my career from an amazing endocrinologist who said, you know, no two diabetic patients are alike. Mm-hmm. And uh, no two people, right? no two persons are alike. Right. And even though something may be low carb, it may still spike someone's blood sugar more than others. It's right. all personalized. It's all about you, how you process, how you digest it, who you are, what your HP axis status is, you know, how you deal with stress. So I think the continuous glucose monitor has been amazing. So many patients that really didn't believe me when I said we really need to bring your blood sugar under control, you know, even when your hemoglobin A1C is borderline, because, you know, I, I'm very strict about but hemoglobin A1C when it's normal, right? Uh, and small changes being really significant because we have the literature to support that. So having that continuous glucose monitoring has been amazing because it has really shown patients just how they can affect their blood sugar by what they're putting in their mouth and and how you, their body processes and what else they can do. And the whole thing about you know it's the company you keep when it comes to food. It's like right. nobody's perfect. Nobody's going to avoid carbs at all, mm-hmm. all the time. But it's what do you eat along with it that's going to bring that more that blood sugar stabilization. Sure. Yeah. And that that data is compelling to patients, right? So it's good education for them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Saturated fat. Hmm. Pure evil or misunderstood? Hmm. (laughs) Oh, I think it's misunderstood. (laughs) You know, every time I I think about fat, I think about Mark Hyman's book, right? Mm -hmm. Fat will not make you fat or or something of that sort. So I, I think you really have to, again, also look at the particular patient. Right now, we're um, looking at more and more literature around the, you know, someone's genetics and how that may affect you know, whether they can sort of eat more saturated fat or not. But I think you have to take it on a personal level. And I don't think that uh, fat is, all saturated fat is bad. I think you have to look at it individually mm-hmm. and, and look at where it's coming from, too. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the source? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so one other question then on that same vein of fats. What oils can we cook with? I know that some are better than others. What oils do you use to cook? avoiding a lot of the processed yeah, seed oils. Yeah, hydrogenated so. oils. Yeah, so yeah. what oil do you use to cook things in? Um, I use a lot of coconut oil. I use ghee. I make my own ghee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I do use extra virgin olive oil sometimes for cooking, but only at very, very you know low heat because, of course, you sort of do away with all the benefits all the polyphenols Mm -hmm. um but believe it or not you know i have someone that um has a lot of sort of free range cattle as well as uh pigs and you name it you know Mm -hmm. actually they have a lot of animals in general and i believe it or not i do occasionally use lard too it depends what i'm doing it for mm-hmm. and where it came from mm-hmm. right i don't yeah. if i'm talking i'm not talking about crisco or all those uh, synthetic you know horrible fats right uh but i am talking about something that when you look at back in history it's been used and i'm not sure that it's been that big of a contributor when you look at the literature 
to heart disease. I think you have to look at it on an individual basis. Yeah. And that whole fat versus carb conversation around what is the contributor is so interesting how that tale has sort of turned a little bit in exactly. recent, recent years. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I'm rec- I started rereading a book that I read a long time ago. It's called The Big Fat Surprise. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have no. ever heard of it, but it goes through all the different studies on fat related to cholesterol and how many of them were flawed and the reasons why. Mm. So it was a pretty um, eye-opening book, I thought. Interesting. Cool. And a lot of people don't know this, Philomena, though we know this, that in the Azores, you actually grow and raise all of your own food. You're quite a farmer <laughs> yes. and a homesteader there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's been pretty amazing, though. I, you know, I remember years ago, I read the book by Michael Pollan, uh, the omnivore's dilemma, uh-huh. where he talks about that. You know, if you're going to be an omnivore, you really have to consider that you may have to slaughter your own animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I grew up in a culture where we did that, but it was ritualistic, and you know, we gave thanks. And so, I never really quite thought of it that way. But after reading his book, I said, you know, yeah, that's true. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. So I had to. Um, learn to slaughter my own chickens, even mm. though I love them dearly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's difficult. Nobody likes to do it, at least nobody that I know of. Uh, but it was something that I felt like if I'm going to continue to be an omnivore, because I was a vegetarian for a while, and I, it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I was probably the unhealthiest I've ever been, mm-hmm. uh, for other reasons, but but in particular, uh, because I do need more protein than mm-hmm. maybe the average person, mm-hmm. my body size. Um, and uh, I said, okay, well, then I have to do this. Yeah. So, yes, I have my own chickens, and uh, <laughs> I love them very much, and I do an occasion have to slaughter them. Yeah, yeah. Not fun, but... And it's just a part of, of connecting back to your food in a way, you know, that yeah. I think most of us don't have to think about, and we, and for that reason, we don't think about it as much. Right. Sure, but, and th- there's something, too, about eating what you grow. You know, the whole farm-to-table but being involved in the process, I, I think it really makes the food more nutritious. And maybe it's not necessarily that the food is more nutritious. Maybe it's that we're able to absorb it better when you sort of have that connection and you know where it came from. Interesting. Right. Yeah. But uh, for me, it's been amazing. I've been really interesting. Uh, I've, been, I've been really interested at looking to some of the studies showing that, that if you know that something you're eating is nutritious. So, for example, if you're eating a bowl of blueberries and you think about, you know, this is really important for my health. This is antioxidant. There's lots of antioxidants. It's going to create an anti-inflammatory response, at least for most people it will, unless you have a sensitivity to it. And um, it's actually going to communicate the level of my DNA that it increases its its function, its value, mm. even its ORAC value. There's a couple studies mm. I looked wow. at. So I think it's just really amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, check out Philomena's <laughs> Gardens on Facebook yeah. <laughs> or the website. Um, yeah, you have to come visit too. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Another question on metabolic flexibility and kind of intermittent fasting. So, if we've got somebody who's kind of on that insulin resistance spectrum, how much are you trying to get them into ketosis? Are you trying to get them into like a little bit of ketosis every day or a couple times a week, or does it just kind of depend? What's your thought there? Well, I think it depends on the person. And I, I've been following a lot the work of Walter Longo, right, and the mm-hmm. fast mimicking diet. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the literature so far is pretty astounding. I'd like to see, you know, some more studies, but some more human studies, I should say. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to uh, sort of take each person, you know, as an island in a way and really look at them. But in general, 
uh, intermittent fasting has been pretty amazing. Even of those patients that I initially thought, you know, there's a lot going on with their HPA axis, and I'm concerned that they may get into hypoglycemia. When you start to sort of introduce it gradually, I've been seeing some pretty amazing results. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that may work, you know, probably for the majority of patients, but there's some people where you may just have to go a little bit further and work on getting them into ketosis. I think you have to personalize it and also for what you're trying to achieve, mm-hmm. right? For, for example, I may need to get someone into uh, intermittent ketosis of what I call it, which is, you know, maybe they're in ketosis most of the day, but then in the afternoon they're not because there's some things that I need them to ingest that are going to get them out of ketosis. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for others, you know, depending on what we're dealing with, we, there's a lot of literature on ketosis, for example, and different types of cancer. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on what we're working with mm-hmm. and what our goals are. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's let's touch a bit on your mentorship programs through Sadate Wellness. And we know that many new clinicians dive into functional medicine training, and then they kind of get lost in that practice integration piece of this. So number one, what's your approach when it comes to helping clinicians who are new to functional medicine, and where can they sign up to work with you? Oh, they can just go to my website, www.drtrindade.com, or they can go to saudadewellness.com. That's S-A-U-D-A-D-E, wellness.com. But you're absolutely right, Patty. It's... um, more and more difficult to try and implement what we're learning in Mm -hmm. functional medicine, metabolic medicine to clinical practice. And I'm not really sure that I understand why, because I thought that the more that it's being accepted, right, and there's this consciousness about it, that, you know, that's good medicine. um, I would think it would be easier, but I find it that people are sort of more and more scared to take that leap and um, maybe they're being introduced to it a little bit earlier on in their careers and what happened to me I'm not sure the reason but I see this big gap between learning all this and knowing that it makes sense and having the science behind it and then actually putting it into clinical practice Mm. so that's been sort of my biggest um, um, work you know with the people that I mentor but I can do uh, everything in general, I have quite a few patients, uh, actually not patients, I have quite a few uh, practitioners right now that they're working more and, you know, how do I do it? Right. You know, I've been a part of a group, now I want to do this, but my group doesn't really support me, so I'm going to start my own practice, but how do I go about doing that? And that's what I did. I started out very small mm-hmm. and uh, became bigger and then became smaller again. And I, if, I've kind of had to be a one-person show at times. Mm-hmm. So I find that um, I can help usually and make suggestions any anywhere along the pathway where someone is at. And then I also have um, a few that are seeing more difficult cases. And they want someone that they can run things by and say, okay, what do I do next? What's my approach? You know, what do I do with this? What does this mean? Or where would you go from here? Right. So it's been actually really rewarding. I enjoy it very much. And I'd like to have more. <laughs> and we're going to encourage everyone to go to drtrindade.com or Sadate Wellness to work with you because we know you to be such an amazing mentor. You've helped Michael and I so much. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot from you guys. Oh. <laughs> do you think that new clinicians, uh, do you think that they're more hesitant about the administrative challenges of kind of going into functional medicine or the, the actual clinical knowledge and intervention knowledge that's new to them? Like what's, what's more scary to new clinicians, do you think? I think it's a mixture. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, because a lot of times um, 
I don't know if it's sort of where we're at in the world and the fact that maybe we're a little more cautious, a little more suspicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I saw this even before COVID. I see that a lot of practitioners are really afraid to take that leap and put things into practice, Mm -hmm. period, what they're learning. Some things more so than others, even after they have the knowledge base, Mm -hmm. because they're afraid that they're stepping outside the box and they're going to be looked down upon or criticized, you know, by their colleagues. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also see those that are really afraid to go on their own because they've never done that. And they're not sure that they can sort of uh, take over the administrative piece because we've had more and more clinicians are part of large maintenance organizations, right? Where they go in and they have basically have their work, whether it's nine to five or they're taking call, but they don't necessarily have to deal with the administrative piece. And when they think about going on their own, they're like, oh, you know, it, 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 it seems a little bit overwhelming, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And uh, I actually came at it the other way around. I was in administration before I knew what I was doing. Literally, I was sort of <laughs> thrown into it. Yeah. And I feel like that um, made things a little less scary for me because, you know, when you go from managing, you know, 40 different clinicians to just managing you and maybe, you know, one, <laughs> one other person, it makes it a lot easier or it doesn't seem so overwhelming, yeah. you know. Right. And in the nonprofit days, I was sort of thrown into it. So to me, it was like it was easier to then sort of handle or develop my own practice. But one other thing that I noticed is when I was doing this, you know, I purposely did the fellowship over two years Mm -hmm. because I wanted to start implementing things in clinic as I was learning them in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was working part time at a nonprofit and two of my friends were doing a fellowship somewhere else, a different type of fellowship. And their fellowship was very theoretical but there was not a big focus on implementing it clinically. Whereas in mine, there was. And maybe it was because I was driven that direction as well. Mm-hmm. But if as soon as I would learn something, I would implement it right away. And I knew that I could call the different professors and ask for help. I mean, I remember having a patient with ulcerative colitis and just having learned for Patrick about the high-dose a VSL, the mm-hmm. three treatment, and calling them up and saying, I want to do this, but I'm scared. Can you guide me through it? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I, but it was that. It, it was sort of learning it and then turning around and implementing it. Right. That I think made a huge difference for me. And right now, a lot of sort of the newbies that are coming into functional medicine and metabolic medicine, I see them learning it, trying to sort of make sense out of it. And not implementing it right away, but being really afraid or having, you know, there's kind of a barrier to implementing it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so that's where I come in, because to me, that's that's the easiest part, yeah. Yeah. because I'm so used to implementing it on me and then telling patients, OK, this is what I've learned. Let's let's try this. And you and I are in this together. Mm-hmm. So let's see what kind of outcomes we can get. That's great. Perfect. That's great. That's Perfect. what's missing. Well, we have, um, before we let you go, and I want to first say thank you so thank much, you so for, much for, for coming Anna. on and spending some time oh, with us. It's my pleasure. Um, thank we, you. Do you have one last question that we call the fireball? It's supposed to be a question the that's fireball. too hot to handle and <laughs> catches you by surprise. Last time we asked you about sandwiches and you great, gave a beautiful explanation <laughs> regarding the, this sort of sandwich that you have put together. And I think there was some cheese involved that you promised to mail to me at some point. Um, <clears throat> my address has changed, so I'll, I'll DM you. My, my oh, you bet. I'm so sorry about that. You better send me the new <laughs> one. Um, but today, I would like to ask and you. And you remember that, too. Yes. I'm impressed. Thank you. 
Because I usually keep my promises. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today I would like to ask you about soup and how you feel about soup. And do you have a favorite soup? Hmm. Oh, my gosh. I love soup. And my latest videos have been all about soups because um, I can make a soup out of just about anything. <laughs> I, you know, I usually just look in the refrigerator and whether it's leftovers or it's, you know, new vegetables, I can throw it together. I, I, someday I want to write a book about soups. I love that. Uh, so, so my, my, probably my, I love soups. And as my uh, nephew and nieces, some of which you guys have met, yep, always yep. say, it's like, Didia, is it green or is it orange today? <laughs> because <laughs> those are the two main colors of soup that, that I have. But I have to say, probably, um, I'm stuck. There's two all-time favorite soups. Um, right now, I think my very favorite is um, a pumpkin. Like oh. a, a butternut, well, it's actually a butternut squash type of soup, Yum. that type of, uh, of a squash. Because with that as the base, you can add all different types of green vegetables. So one day maybe you're going to add kale, and another day you're going to add chard, and another day you're going uh, to add dill. And it will completely change the flavor. Mm. And it's a complex carb, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to have to be careful with it in terms of someone with insulin resistance. But because you're also adding green, uh, vegetables to it and you can even add some avocado or some you know uh, olive oil after you've already made the soup so that you change in a, in a way the way the carbs are being absorbed mm -hmm. um, I feel like anybody can have it and it's so tasty I, I love carrot soup I also love asparagus I, I basically love soups in general mm -hmm. but I have to say probably that um, like a butternut squash yeah. It's probably my, my favorite because you can even just add a little bit of uh, ginger to it. Yes. And it's a different type of soup. Yes. I've had that Completely ginger butternut squash Oh, it's delicious. Combo. It's All right. Great. So, Philomena, add this to the list along with the cheese. We're going to need some soup. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think you guys should just come over and I'll cook right. for you. I know. You keep saying that. You'd like. This is all on us. We, we actually, we have to get over there as, as soon as possible. Yeah. Do you know it's only a four and a half hour flight from Boston? Well, there you go, Michael. You go. No excuse. That's right. <laughs> well, well, Philomena, as always, this is an amazing amount of great information. And we're so honored to be your friends. And we're so glad you came back on the show. And we want to encourage everyone to go to your website, drtrindade.com or Sadade Wellness. And thanks for being here, Philomena. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, no. Thank you, you guys. It's always such a pleasure. Many blessings. Yeah, so she's the best. She's She is the best. And she knows so much. And to be honest, her mentorship really does change clinicians' lives. Like, she's really that good. Yeah, I, I should probably sign up for that mentorship because mm -hmm. um, I need my life changed. <laughs> I feel like I left out one question because What's she that? talked about the orange soup and mm -hmm. the green soup, and obviously the orange soup is the butternut squash. Right. What's the green soup? She mentioned an asparagus Ooh. soup. Well, let's just say you and I have seen her eat boatloads of broccoli, so I'm sure there's broccoli involved in it. A broccoli soup? I don't know. I've only had one green soup. What one? Pea soup? Yeah, split pea. Yeah. No. Which really, they should just call that salt soup. <laughs> well, because that's what it is. Philomena said she could make anything into a soup. So I just foresee her going into her garden, grabbing vegetables and souping them. Oh, it's got to be amazing. Mm, I know. I like how you use soup as a verb there. You're welcome. Did I just create another gerund? I really don't recognize the syllables coming out of your mouth right now. Gerund. No. A gerund is when you take a verb and you turn it into a noun, like running is my favorite hobby, running is a gerund. But I guess using that definition, souping doesn't really qualify as a gerund. 
She knows I was joking about the cheese, right? Of course she does. She loved you. I mean, I still want it. <laughs> you just put it back on her radar. You're going to get it now. No, I'm, I'm going to go there for real. I really think you should. Yeah. With your family? Like a vacation? Maybe. Cool. Off to the volcanic archipelago. Ar- archipelago. That's what I said. Next time on The Lab Report, the glyoxalate pathway. Yeah, we're going to dive into oxalates. Everything you ever wanted to know about oxalates. Delicious. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So have you ever had a kidney stone? Yeah, I did, actually. You did? Yeah. I hear that's remarkably painful. I've seen patients in the hospital writhing. Not fun. No? The weird thing about it is they, like, gave me this thing to, like, catch it. Yeah. To, like, to strain your urine. And they never found it. What? True. I, 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 I don't know. It could still be there. <laughs> Might want to check that out.